massive welcome to you. We're getting a new teaching series underway called Miracle. So why don't we pray? Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us through your word and by your spirit. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. So over the next six weeks, we're going to be in a series entitled Miracles, looking at the signs and wonders of the kingdom of God. Healing, deliverance, the miraculous, all of that stuff. I'm super excited about the journey that lies ahead. So let me get underway with a story. And the story is of an elderly couple in their 80s, Rob and Sue. They're watching TV one night. And um, it's pretty boring what they're watching. Rob ends up popping to the toilet. And whilst they're sort of, whilst Sue's waiting for Rob to return, um, she decides that she's just going to do a bit of channel surfing. You know, when you're really bored and you're like, there must be something else better on. So she goes through some channels and she stumbles across something on like one of those Christian TV channels. And there's this TV evangelist preaching about healing and about the supernatural. And she's like drawn in, quite intrigued by it. And he starts praying for healing over people in the room. And then there's this moment, it often happens with these channels, where the preacher's preaching to the room and then suddenly locks eye with the camera and begins to speak to people at home. You know the drill. And basically says, this healing isn't just for those in the room. No, there is power for healing if you're watching this from home, wherever you're watching. It says, all you need to do is this. You need to reach out one hand, touch the TV screen. And then with your other hand, put it on the part of your body that's sick and healing power's gonna flow to you. Now, Sue's watching this thinking, this is very strange. But what have I got to lose? So she steps forward to the TV, puts her hand on the TV and a hand on her stomach. She'd been having some stomach um, pain. And at that point, Rob walks back into the room thinking this is incredibly bizarre. What on earth is going on? Sue, explain yourself. Um, She gives a brief explanation and he thinks, well, what have I got to lose? So he reaches out his hand, put one hand on the TV and the other hand on his private parts. And Sue turns to her husband and says, Rob, he's healing the sick. He ain't raising the dead. (laughs) It's it's a high-risk gag. It's a high-risk joke. I'm aware that there is a line in terms of church humour. And maybe I've just crossed that line. I'm fully aware of that. I'm fully aware of that. If that has offended anyone, huge apologies. Do send me an email. My email address is tim.hughes. at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, so we're going to be talking about supernatural healing. We're going to be in two chapters of Matthew's Gospel for the rest of the, the six weeks of this series. So if you want to do this in your devotional reading, just stay in Matthew 8 and 9 for the next six weeks, and you're going to get flavour of this aspect of the ministry of Jesus. But I, I want to frame this series in the context of something wider that the Lord is doing at KXC. So over the last couple of years, maybe even more than that, we've been really going after a vision of holiness. What does holiness look like for us? Um, A while ago, we did a series of conversations on race. We had some honest conversations about racial reconciliation, racial justice, which is a conversation about holiness. We hosted a seven-week series, Conversations on Human Sexuality. It's essentially a conversation about holiness. We've been talking through Psalm 24 that we want to ascend the hill of the Lord, but if you want to ascend the hill of the Lord, you need clean hands and a pure heart. And we've been basically saying, we so desire the presence of God, we want to be set apart for the person of Jesus and the purposes of Jesus. In other words, we want to be consecrated before God. We want to take holiness seriously. That's the journey that we've been on. But there's this beautiful moment that that precedes Matthew 8 and 9. 
So before Matthew 8 and 9, you have what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus teaching about the ethics of the kingdom of God. Like what does holiness look like? But what you have in how Matthew structures this account of Jesus is that you've got a verse that precedes the Sermon on the Mount, and then you've got a verse that comes after the Sermon on the Mount. And this is known as a literary device called an inclusio where you basically make a statement, then you do some teaching, and then you repeat the statement. And you're trying to connect two thoughts, what's in the middle of the sandwich, um, as, as well as what's on the edges. So if you read this, and let's read it together. In fact, I'll read it, it'd be much easier. But verse 23 of Matthew 4, just before the Sermon on the Mount, it says, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. So you've got this conversation about the signs and wonders of the kingdom of God. Then you've got Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And then you've got the repeat verse. Jesus went, this is in Matthew 9 now, went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. I call this the Sermon on the Mount burger. Um, And the point I'm trying to make is that what Jesus is doing here is basically saying you cannot separate the world the works and the wonders of the kingdom from the way of the kingdom. Like if you want the life of the kingdom, you need to adopt the lifestyle of the kingdom. Like we've been talking a lot about holiness, but I want to say that's intimately connected with what we're talking about now, which is around the purposes of the kingdom of God being made known in our community and beyond our community. Here's the second thought then, just before we we jump in. We were given a prophetic word a a while ago, and the word was that your destiny is hidden in your history, that there are things that are part of the story of King's Cross that the Lord wants to do again, right? And we've had a number of words about unblocking wells, and that at KXC, in King's Cross, a well of worship would emerge, and through this well of worship, like signs and wonders would begin to flow. Now, when I hear prophetic words like that, I'm like, yes and amen, Lord, may it be so. But I become fascinated with the fact that in the 1800s, there was a well in King's Cross. It was called St. Chad's Well. And this is um, a description of what was happening in the 1800s in King's Cross. Um, in the 1800s, King's Cross was known as Battle Bridge, right? From AD 60, roughly onwards, um, it was known as Battle Bridge. Only in the late 1800s was it renamed King's Cross. Um, so let me just read you this description of St. Chad's Well here in King's Cross, um, where healing waters were flowing. St. Chad's Well, health restored and preserved by drinking the Battle Bridge waters, King's Cross waters, commonly called St. Chad's Wells, formerly dedicated to St. Chad, first Bishop of Litchfield. These waters are recommended by the most eminent physicians as the best purging waters in England. They are found highly efficacious in removing all complaints which affect the urinary passages such as stone and gravel. No one wants those in your urinary passages. They likewise cure scurvy, bile, worms, piles. Can I hear an amen? Um, Tough crowd. Um, Indigestion, nervous complaints, seminal weaknesses and various other disorders too numerous for an advertisement. Several attestations of their wonderful effects may be seen in the pump room. Apparently there's a pump room where it just told stories of these supernatural healings that had been taking place. Now, some of you will be asking, well, where is this well? Where was St. Chad's well? No one was asking that, but I'm going to answer it anyway. That essentially, this is a, a picture of the River Fleet, which is now the largest subterranean river in London. It obviously used to be overground, um, and it 
runs from Hampstead all the way into the River Thames. But as you see in the diagram, it comes right through King's Cross. Now, the nickname for the River Fleet was River of Wells because there was wells along this river with healing properties. Now, if you zoom in one step closer, you'll see it comes right down by the new redevelopment. It comes up the Pentonville Road. In other words, right by where we are now. Let's zoom in one step further. The star on the screen is King's House. The cross is the Ethiopian church. So it comes right past King's House and then turns off down this side road. And no one knows exactly where the well was, St. Chad's Well. It was obviously uh, along the path of this river. So there are people like nerds online discussing like where where was this well? And there's different theories. Um, This is the best attempt to answer where the well was, probably within this sort of like area that you can see on the screen, probably the star on the right, that's where it's most likely to have been, but no one really knows. I'm choosing to believe it's right underneath King's house. Can I hear an amen? Can I hear an amen? Let's claim it. Um, The point I'm trying to make is that there has been a well right here in King's Cross right by King's house, where there are signs and wonders and multiple stories of healing. If he's done it before, do you believe he can do it again? Do you believe he can do it again? Lord, we've heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds. Would you repeat them? All these stories from St. Chad's Well in the 1800s, would you do it again? There is a well of worship stirring up in this place, a hunger for the presence of God and the purposes of God right on the waves of his presence. We, we should come to a series like this with expectation. Maybe the Lord's stirring something. Maybe we should be leaning in for a wave of fresh signs and wonders in our time. So I come to this moment with incredible, Incredible excitement. So Matthew 8 and 9, this is where we're going to spend our time. And this is the direction of travel over the next six weeks. We're going to look at number one, the willingness of God. Is it God's will to heal? Is it always God's will to heal? Next week, we're going to look at the holiness of God. There's a vision in the Gospels of a holiness that isn't just about being set apart from the world, but set apart for the world. Right, there's a story, we're going to unpack it today actually, of Jesus healing a leper. He reaches out and touches a leper. And the context of the first century, touching a leper would make you ceremonially unclean. But Jesus, when he reaches out and touches the leper, he doesn't become unclean. He's not contaminated with the impurity of the leper. No, he contaminates the leper with holiness and healing begins to flow. Theologians call this contagious holiness. When you carry the presence of God and holiness begins to radiate from you. We're going to look at that. Thirdly, the word of God. There's moments where Jesus speaks a word and brings healing. That shouldn't surprise us, right? God created the world through speech. Let there be light and there was Exactly. So Jesus says, be clean. And the leper's clean. Like we, we can speak words that have healing power. Fourthly, the authority of God. Jesus has given us all the authority we need for this ministry. Like there's this beautiful story in these two chapters where a centurion comes to Jesus and says, look, my servant's ill. Like, can, can, you, can you speak the word and bring healing? And Jesus says, yeah, I'll come. And the, the centurion says, no, you don't even need to come. I know how authority works. I'm a man of authority. I'm a centurion. I tell soldiers, go and do this, and they go and do this. There's authority on you. You don't even need to come and visit my servant. Just speak the word. And then Jesus says, oh my gosh. This is a paraphrase, obviously. Oh my, oh my gosh. Um, This guy understands authority. 
And she speaks the word and healing begins to flow. You know you have that kind of authority. Incredible the authority we have in Jesus. Week five, the faithfulness of God. And our response to the faithfulness of God is that we can have faith in God to continue this ministry. Faith is a key ingredient in the process. Not the only ingredient, but a key ingredient. And number six, compassion. You know, when you're praying for someone and and you're moved in your core for them, like Jesus had that compassion, moments where his heart would break. And when you read in the Gospels, a statement like, and Jesus had compassion on them, you can expect supernatural ministry to flow, right? Because the compassion is like a door that opens and the kingdom comes rushing in. So when Jesus sees a crowd that are hungry, it says he had compassion on them. And suddenly there's the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. These are some of the key ingredients of the ministry of Jesus in Matthew 8 and 9. And we want to lean into this because we're hungry to see more signs and wonders in our community. We should expect more of these things as we begin to host more and more of the presence of God. So let's read Matthew chapter 8. For the four of you that bought your Bibles, turn to Matthew 8. Otherwise, it's on the screen. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, this is post Sermon on the Mount, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. I want you to hear the question here. Lord, if you're willing. In other words, Lord, is it your will? Is it your will for me to be clean? Is it your will for healing power to flow? Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand, touched the man. And again, just remember the context. Jesus reaching out to touch a leper. Anyone watching this would be like, what what, what is he doing? What, What is he doing? But Jesus has a vision of contagious holiness. He reaches out his hand, touches the man. I am willing. Or it is my will. Lord, is it your will? It is my will. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. The big question here is, is it God's will to heal? Is it always God's will to heal? Now, before we go any further, we need to to name the elephant in the room because most of the room will be thinking this. There'll be some levels of excitement of, Lord, we wanna see more of the signs and wonders. We've read the pages of the gospels. We've read the book of Acts. We've read some stories from church history. We wanna see some of this like here and now. So there'll be some excitement, but there'll also be some anxiety and an undercurrent of disappointment. Like, Lord, if it is your will to heal, how come my uncle died of cancer? Or how come my friend that I've prayed for regularly is wrestling with a chronic condition? How come, and how come, how come, let's just be honest, we don't need to push those questions down and pretend they're not there. They're there. Most of us, when we begin a conversation or a teaching series about healing, anxiety levels rise. Because there's questions, there's some doubts, and there's some disappointment. So any conversation about the healing power of Jesus and the gift of healing for the church today comes with some excitement and some nervousness. And therefore, we need to tread carefully with theological nuance and pastoral sensitivity. And we're going to try and do that. 
Let me introduce you to one of the eight compound names of God in the Old Testament. Compound names, two words shoved together to form a new word and that becomes a name for God. So Yahweh my shepherd, that's Psalm 23. Yahweh Jireh or Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh my provider. Yahweh my sanctifier, Yahweh dot, dot, dot. One of those eight names is Yahweh Raphael. Should we say it together? Yahweh Raphael literally means Yahweh my healer. Yahweh my healer. Now, the thing you need to know about these eight compound names of God in the Old Testament, they're like windows into the character and nature of God. They're not just descriptions of the activity of God. This is God saying, this isn't just what I do. This is actually who I am. I am provider, right? I am your healer. Now, for God to be God, he has to act in accordance with his will right? And in accordance with his character. So when he says, this is my name, a window into who I am, and I'm only going to ever act in accordance with my character as revealed through these names. In other words, it's the very nature and character of God to heal. It is his will to heal. So let's listen to the context where this name is first used. The, The people of Israel have been on a journey out of slavery in Egypt. They're journeying towards the promised land. They're in the wilderness and they're in a moment of vulnerability because of the temperature, the intense heat. They're really, really thirsty and they come across some water and they taste the water and the water is bitter. Like how heartbreaking, like water. Oh, it's not drinkable, right? And they have a a bit of a moan. So let's read from verse 25. Then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. Side point, but I find this fascinating. Notice that God says, look at that wood, piece of wood over there. I want you to throw it into that water. And Moses responds with obedience. He doesn't question or refuse. He's like, mm, I don't understand that, but okay. Throws it into the water and the water's made sweet. This is God using one part of creation to bring healing to another part of creation, Right? That's often how God works, right? For most of us in the room, the most common form of our healing will be antibiotics, right? And that isn't any less spiritual than the supernatural healings that we're going to read about, right? God using one part of creation to bring healing to another part of creation. Anyway, let's keep reading verse 26. God said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am... Yahweh Raphae, I am the Lord who heals you. Now, you've probably heard me say this before, but there's a principle that rabbis would use in the first century, in in the early centuries, to understand the root meanings of words. They would go to the first use of that word in scripture and the first use of that word would illuminate its meaning. So for example, freedom, the first use of the word freedom is in Genesis 1 and 2, where God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat any of the fruit, just don't eat the fruit of that one tree. You are free to eat anything apart from the fruit of that one tree. In other words, a biblical understanding of freedom isn't the absence of boundaries. No, it's like Eden. It's living in communion with God with the right boundaries in place. Think of the word love. The first use of the word love is in Genesis 22. Right? And this first use helps shape the meaning of the word. The highest form of love in the Jewish framework is the love of a father for a son. And that comes from the story of Genesis 2. 22, um, where God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. In other words, trust me with what is most precious to you. And Jesus uses that verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gives his one and only son, right? So the first use of a word illuminates meaning. 
So what's the first use of this word Raphae, healer? Um, It's Genesis 20, which is the story of Abraham and Abimelech. Let me read from verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female slaves, so that they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So the first use of this term rephrase in the context of the Lord opening up wombs to enable life to begin to flow. Right? So I want you to think, when you read this term, Raphael, or healing, it's restoration that brings about life. Restoration that brings about life. Now we're going to look briefly at the semantic range of this term, because it's used in multiple times in the Old Testament, all with regard to restoration that brings about life. So 1 Kings 18, this is the story of Elijah going into battle against the prophets of Baal. Um, Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he, Raphael, healed, repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Basically, before he goes into battle, he says to the people, we need to repair this altar because we know that right worship brings life. So we need to restore this altar so that life can begin to flow. Here's the next story, 2 Kings chapter 2. This is now a story of Elisha. Then he went out to the spring and threw salt water into it, saying, this is what the Lord says, I have Raphael healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. So there was a contaminated water supply. That is not good news if you're a village nearby, right? So Elisha does this thing and there is healing. Raphael, in other words, The water supply is purified so that life can begin to flow. Restoration that leads to life. Um, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin and will... Raphael or heal, I'll go with either, yeah. Um, Will heal their land. Um, Locusts had been ravaging the land. And this is God saying, if you turn back to me, I will Raphael. I will restore the land so that life can begin to flow again. Psalm 41, I know you've got the point, but I'm just going to keep on going. Psalm 41, I said, have mercy on me, Lord. Heal or refrain, yeah. For I have sinned against you. This is spiritual healing. In other words, this is dealing with sin. Sin separates us from God. And this is a moment where sin is dealt with so we can be reconciled to God so that life can begin to flow again. Psalm 147, he heals the broken heart and binds up their wounds. This is emotional healing so that life can begin to flow again. The point I'm trying to make, and I've laboured it, I'm fully aware, is that the semantic range of this one term includes physical healing, emotional healing, and spiritual healing. Let's just pause on emotional healing. This is what Tyler Staten spoke about last week. If you missed his talk from last week, you really should listen. Absolutely breathtaking talk about emotional healing. This slow, deep work of healing at a soul level, right? Richard Raw, a Franciscan priest who talks a lot about spirituality, says one of the primary aspects of spirituality is to help us process pain, is to help us process pain. He says you've got really two options as to what you do with your pain. You either transmit it or you transform it. There really isn't a third option. 
You either transmit it or you transform it. What most of us do, if we're being really honest, is when it becomes too much, we can't cope, so we self-medicate to numb the pain so we're unaware of it, and we just push it down. And we think we're containing it. We think we're dealing with it, but we just push it down. And if you've got unprocessed grief or disappointment or anger, and you push it down, it, it doesn't disappear, right? It just creates bitterness that eats away at you from the inside. And what happens then is that bitterness begins to leak and you transmit it, normally on your nearest and dearest. You, you think that you're dealing with it, you're not dealing with it, you're transmitting your pain. Richard Ross says option one is transmit, option two is you transform your pain. But you can only transform your pain by bringing it to God, Yahweh Raphae, which means you have to let him in. You have to give him like access all areas to come and do the work that only he can do at a soul level, bring restoration to your innermost being. One of my close friends was going through a season in her life where she was really struggling. She was regularly meeting with her spiritual director who was a mother superior. And in one of their meetings, my friend basically said to the mother superior, look, everywhere I look in my life is just mess. It's chaos everywhere. I feel like my life's falling apart, like relationships work. It's, it's just all very messy. Everywhere I look, it's essentially crap. And this mother superior just like began to lean in towards my friend and said these words. I'm quoting from a mother superior. Don't judge me. I'm quoting a mother superior. Um, said to my friend, well, you do know that God takes the shit of our lives and uses it for manure. Mother superior said it. I mean, I find that language outrageous. So there's a mother superior, not me. Um, God takes that of our lives and uses it for manure. Like, that is actually what God does when we let him in. He will take the place of complete brokenness that feels like complete mess to us. And if we allow him to do his restorative work, restoration that leads to life, he will take that place and he will use that for manure to allow kingdom stuff to grow again. But you've got to let him in. You've got to let him in. Emotional healing. This is part of the healing that Yahweh brings, Yahweh refers. Spiritual healing. This is the ultimate form of healing, that he reconciles us to himself through the cross. Listen to these words, Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Our ultimate healing is, is the reconciliation between us and God, right? The sin that separates us when we confess our sins. He's faithful and just and he forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It's washed away, separated from us as far as the east is from the west. How unbelievable is that? Incredibly good news. That's the ultimate form of healing, spiritual healing. Now, most of us, we can get on board with emotional healing that God wants to bring restoration at a soul level. We very quickly get on board that he wants to bring spiritual healing, reconcile us to himself, push back the darkness. But when we talk about physical healing, people get anxious and begin to feel a little bit nervous about this conversation. Why is that? How do we live with the tension that, that God's will is to heal, but our experience is that we live with the pain, the reality that we don't always see healing. Here's a number of options to help us understand this moment. Option number one, these are different ways that the church has tried to navigate this. Option number one, we say God's will is always to heal. Yahweh refers his name, right? It's a revelation of his character. Um, so his will is always to heal, but God isn't all powerful. 
Right? His power is in some, in some way limited. His will is to heal, but his power is limited. Um, and I want to say from the get-go that that's horrible theology. Right? Option one is horrible theology. Theologians agree that for God to be God, there are certain characteristics that go with the Godhead. These are called the immutable characteristics of God. There's three of them. That God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. For God to be God, he has to possess these qualities. So he has to be all-powerful. So option one, <clears throat> we're ruling that one out. Option two is we say God is all-powerful. For God to be God, he has to be all-powerful. But his will isn't always to heal. There's a stream in the church that would say there are moments where God not just allows sickness and suffering, he ordains it for a higher purpose. Calvinists would sometimes say this. God is sovereign. Um, he wills everything. He not just allows it. He ordains sickness and suffering for a higher purpose. Um, and I want to tread carefully, but I want to say I think it's really bad theology. Because to basically say that, that God ordains sickness and suffering is to say that there are moments where he operates not in accordance with his character. His character is Yahweh Raphae. Yahweh who heals. Everything he does is an overflow of who he is. And we're basically saying if sometimes God wills suffering and sickness, he's operating not in accordance with his character as revealed in Scripture. So I really struggle with option two. Um, Is there a third option? The good news is there is a third option, by the way. And the third option goes something like this. God is all-powerful. For God to be God, he has to be all-powerful. God's will is always to heal. He always acts in accordance with his will, um, with his character that's revealed in Scripture. Um, And just to to labour that point, here are three moments in Scripture where we see the will of God done. Um, Firstly, in Eden. Secondly, in the ministry of Jesus. Thirdly, in the New Jerusalem. So in Eden, what we see is that there is no sin, there is no sickness, there is no suffering, there is no shame. This is a picture of how God created things to be before the fall, before sin entered the story, right? Fast forward to the end of the story where God deals with all darkness. Um, There's reconciliation in all things. And the Apostle John writes this down. He says, "As, as God restores everything to how it was meant to be, there's no death, there's no grief, there's no crying, there's no pain, right? That's the end of our story. So how does Jesus deal with sin, sickness, suffering, shame in the Gospels? He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He comforts those in pain. He forgives sins. He liberates the oppressed. You will not find one story, one story in the Gospels where Jesus says, no, I've ordained this sickness. I've ordained this suffering. For my glory. There's one moment, John 11, the story of Lazarus, where the sisters come and say, Lazarus, our brother's dying. And he says to them, this sickness will not end in death. Now, I'm going to use it for my glory. And he does. He uses it for his glory as he raises Lazarus from the dead. Right? So God can use sickness, suffering, all these things for his glory. He does. He can work all things for good. He's a redeemer. He's sovereign over all. But he doesn't ordain sickness. He doesn't ordain suffering, right? His will is to heal the sick, raise the dead, comfort those in pain, forgive sin, liberate the oppressed. So God is all powerful. His will is always to heal. But there's a third statement, and this is where it hurts. 
that his will isn't always done. In other words, his will is resisted, right? It's resisted by me. Let me break this to you gently. It's resisted by you. Ever since the garden, where Adam and Eve basically said, no, God, not your will be done, our will be done. We know you said don't eat from that fruit, but it looks awesome. And they take a bite. From that moment on, sin entered the story. And sometimes we say to God, not your will, actually my desires. I'm going to chase after my desires. We all resist the will of God, right? So the the will of God is resisted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've spoken about the flesh, our desires, choosing our desires over the desires of God. Let's talk about the world. The world around us resists the will of God, right? We live in an aggressively secular city where the ways of God, the ways of the kingdom are resisted. And we haven't even started talking about the enemy, right? Paul says our real battle, it isn't against like flesh and blood. It's against the powers and principalities in the heavenly realms. In other words, there is resistance to the will of God in in our flesh. There's resistance in the world. There's resistance in the spiritual realms. So the will of God is resisted. So how do we live in this moment where we're longing for the will of God? We know it's resisted. We believe that God heals, but sometimes we don't experience healing. How do we live in that tension, right? And I want to give three reflections as as we land. Number one, we acknowledge that it hurts. The starting point of living in this tension, believing that we can experience the now of the kingdom, in other words, it breaking in, and we experience the not yetness of the kingdom, moments where it doesn't break in, we acknowledge that this tension hurts. It sucks, right? It hurts. And because we don't like living with tension, we we create theological frameworks that break the tension. Here's two frameworks that we see in the church. Either you move to this side and you say, look, God doesn't heal anymore, right? It's too painful having hope that he might. I I just don't believe he does anymore. This is called cessationism. It's the idea that there was healing in the gospels, the ministry of Jesus, healing in the early church is a power surge to get the church going, but God doesn't heal anymore. And cessationists take one verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, 9, 10 onwards, um, as a basis for why the gifts of the Spirit aren't for today. I, I think it's heresy, really bad theology. But there's a wing of the church that basically says God doesn't do this stuff anymore, which, which does break the tension. At least there's certainty, right? There's, a, there's another end of the spectrum, which is to say, it's not God's fault that we haven't experienced healing. So maybe it's your fault, or maybe it's my fault. Maybe there's some secret sin. Like the problem's our end. Maybe there isn't enough faith in the room, right? And we make it about us. This is really bad theology, right? This is really bad theology. It does so much damage, so much damage. Let me illustrate this. Before B and I planted KXC, B had a year where she was bedridden for the best part of the year. There was an illness. No one could seemingly diagnose it. We'd been to a number of different doctors and we were beginning to panic. We did what probably you would do, is when you have conditions, you can't figure out what's going on, you go to Google, right? And if you type in certain conditions into Google and just keep reading, you're going to find an article that says you're about to die. Right, you, you, you're going to find one of those articles. We found one of those articles. Like, ah, panic. Um, and it, it, it was a horrible moment. And a friend could see that we were going through a really rough time and basically said, I want to give you some money to go and see a private doctor to get to the bottom of this. You can't carry on on this. You need to know what's going on. So we went to see a private doctor. They thought that it might be something neurological. So we went to see a... Um, 
consultant neurologist and they did a whole load of brain scans. And it's, it's terrifying when you're in these hospitals and you're going through scans and, and you think it's probably something quite sinister. And even your like, GPs are saying, we don't know, we're quite concerned. Right? So we did all these scans at the neurologist and the neurologist said, look, I can't see anything wrong with, with the scans. I think it's not in the brain. But when I did the te- test, I detected there's a problem in the heart. Um, so I think you need to see a consultant cardiologist. That's not my field, so I need to connect you with a cardiologist. So we then get pushed on to see a cardiologist, and we wait, and then we have a day of grueling scans. I remember sitting in the car outside the hospital, Queen Square, like 10 minutes from here, like just begging God, like, Lord, this is agony. I genuinely don't know if my wife's dying. I don't know what's going on here. Like, please, Lord, bring your healing power. This is terrifying not knowing. Um, did all the scans. There was nothing in the heart, so that was fine. Um, it later got diagnosed as labyrinthitis, like this dizziness that created like chronic disorientation, bad migraines, which meant she was in bed for most of the year. So we eventually found out what was going on, but we had so many friends in the course of that year, basically they couldn't live in the tension with us, right? So what they tried to do is they tried to fix us and try and solve what was going on. And they'd say things like, oh, you know, we believe it's God's will to heal. Like, is there any sin that you need to confess? And like early on, you're like, well, let's have a go. Let's just, you know, do a little internal look. By the end, it was like, honestly, mate, I've, I've confessed everything. <laughs> like we both have. We've confessed sins. We've confessed sins that we didn't commit, but we got a little bit close. Like... <laughs> We've confessed sins that we haven't committed, but we might one day in the future. Like, we've covered all bases. Like, we have confessed everything. Like, how much faith do you have? Honestly, like, how much faith do you have? Maybe it's a faith issue. I said, oh, um, we have a little bit. Like, not loads, but size of a mustard seed, that might not be good enough for you, but it sounds like that was good enough for Jesus. So we, we have that amount of faith. And when I hear people say, like, how much faith do you have? Because I've been there, it's painful. Like, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Do you know how much faith Lazarus had? None, by the way, he was dead, right? <clears throat> so it's not always a faith issue. It's not always a faith issue. Hardly any of our friends could just sit in the middle, hold the tension and say, this sucks. I'm so gutted for what you're going through. This is horrible. And I hate that you have to sit in this place. But here I am, and I'm going to keep contending for healing. Not asking anything from us, not trying to put blame upon us, trying to explain it so they feel a little bit you know, easier about things. No, just sit in the pain and say, I'm going to contend with you for healing. If your friends are going through this, don't try and find simple, try answers that, that make things more palatable for you. Just sit in the tension, right? Good theology lives with tensions. And therefore, good theology sometimes hurts. Don't try and break the tension. So number one, we embrace the reality that it hurts. Number two, we have incredible cause for hope. Healing is a guarantee in the kingdom story. I'm just going to say it again so that can land in your heart and in your mind. Healing is a guarantee. It's a guarantee. It's a, it's a guarantee in the kingdom story. And for some of us, we won't experience that this side of eternity. But on the other side of eternity, we will. Because there will be no death, there'll be no grief, there'll be no crying, there'll be no pain, which means there will be no cancer in heaven. And there will be no chronic sickness in heaven. And there will be no pain in heaven. Healing is coming, it's a guarantee. 
Um, some theologians talk about this. I found it helpful that some healing happens instantly. We pray, healing happens. Celebration, incredible. A lot of healing doesn't happen instantly. It happens incrementally, slowly. It's a process. It's a journey. Most inner healing, like at the soul level, that's a slow, deep journey, incremental. Some is instantly. Some happens incrementally. But eternally, it's guaranteed. And therefore, we need to hold on to our future hope. Healing is coming. And when Christ returns, all things will be restored to how they were meant to be. We have cause for incredible hope. We need to keep our eternal perspectives um, strong. Thirdly, then, we pray without ceasing. We just keep praying. And when you get bored, you keep praying. And when you're discouraged, you keep praying. And when you start having doubts, you keep praying, right? And if there's ever a moment where you just don't have the strength to keep praying, you grab a friend and you say, I'm absolutely spent. Can you start knocking on the door of heaven for me? Like, can you pray without ceasing? I'm, I'm waning, I'm struggling. Can you keep praying? Can you keep praying? Jesus said, when we pray, this is how we should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The implication is the will of God isn't always done right? So into situations where the will of God isn't being done, that's where we keep knocking. We keep knocking. We keep knocking until his will breaks in. If you carry on in that prayer, the Lord's prayer, Jesus teaches us, pray like this, give us today our daily bread. The actual Greek, a better translation of the Greek would be, give us today tomorrow's bread. Say what? Like what's going on there? And it's a reference to the Exodus narrative, the wilderness journey, where God says on the day before the Sabbath, because the Sabbath is meant to be a day of rest, I want you to collect all the manna you need for that day and for the next day so that you can rest on the Sabbath, right? So on the Sabbath, they were feasting on tomorrow's bread. So Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, give us today tomorrow's bread. In other words, we know what's to come the end of our story. No death, no grief, no crying, no pain. Lord, we want to feed on on what you have in store for us for an eternity. We want a snack of tomorrow's bread today. Think of it like this, Christmas Eve. Go back to to when you were a little kid, Christmas tree, presents under the tree, high levels of excitement, right? You've given your wish list to mum and dad. There are presents wrapped and when mum and dad aren't in the room, you just start feeling around the presents, right? Just to see the shape. I asked for a tennis racket, that looks like a tennis racket. It feels like a tennis racket. It's almost certainly a tennis racket, unless my mum and dad are sick and have just wrapped up something in the shape of a tennis racket. Like, but otherwise, this is, this is good. And then you basically say to, to, to mum or dad, we used to say to mum, she was a little bit easier to persuade. We used to say, mum, is there any chance we can open one present on Christmas Eve? Like We know the rest is for Christmas Day, but can we just open one present on Christmas Eve? And our answer would always be the same. Absolutely not. <laughs> And in that sense, my mum is nothing like God. She's like God in many other ways, but in that sense, she's not like God. Because when we say, Lord, would you give us today tomorrow's bread? God is so gracious that he says, I'd love to do that. Like, yeah, my will is to heal. Like when I return and everything's made new, there'll be no death, no grief, no crying, no pain. But my will is to give you foretastes of that in the here and now. So when you pray, pray, give us today tomorrow's bread. Give us a little snack on what is to come, right? It's the character and nature of God as our healer to do that. He is Yahweh Raphae. So how do we live in the tension? The reality of, of what it's like is that we 
acknowledge that it hurts. We hold on to hope and we pray without ceasing.